The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome. You've entered the realm of 1111 Talk Radio. Your host is Simran Singh. It's time to discover your own language with the universe. Learn to empower yourself, broaden your mind, open your heart, and discover who you are. Now, here's your host, Simran Singh. Are you one of those individuals that holds on to the lemons? sticks to things that were in your past or the cause of dysfunction, stay stuck in your story, or are you someone that takes those lemons and makes lemonade? There are two kinds of people. They're either those that hang on to their lemons or they're those that choose to take those lemons and turn them into lemonade. I'm really thrilled today to have a wonderful guest. Her name is Dr. Joan Borsenko, and she has authored a wonderful new book, which is entitled, It's Not the End of the World, Developing Resilience in Times of Change. And we all certainly know that this is a time of vast changes on our planet and for many people in their lives, whether it is the economy, our health issues that are going on, or just family and general living that takes place. We are always dealing with change. So I'd like to welcome Dr. Joan Borisenko to 1111 Talk Radio. Simon, thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this interview with you. Well, I have too, and I would have to say after reading some of your other work and also this one, I have to agree with Dr. Wayne Dyer. He says you are the smartest woman he's ever known, and I think <laughs> I think you have just so much that you give to us in all of your wisdom and all of your training. So I'm thrilled that you brought this forward because you talk about, or you write at the end of the book, it says that you teach people how to hold fear in the palm of their hand without being burned by its fire. And I think fear is such a limiting part for so many people, especially as these changes in the world and in their lives start to happen more and more frequently. It is. It's just so important because what we all need, really at all times in history, but particularly at jump times in history when the old is just disappearing in front of our eyes and what's new has not yet emerged, we find ourselves in that place between no longer and not yet. And it requires some trust to get through there because, you know, it's not that fear is ever going to go away for most of us, but if we manage fear correctly, it can actually help us to be more creative. But if we, if we let fear take over our lives, then you end up despairing rather than transforming in that time of uncertainty. And uh, <laughs> I don't have to tell you, Simran, we're there at that uncertain time ecologically and politically uh, and really in every other way on planet Earth. 
We are there. I mean, the world is traveling at warp speed. We have people that are dealing with layoffs. We have people that are dealing with foreclosures. We've got this huge issue of the oil spill. We have a struggling economy. We have a health care crisis. We have all kinds of illnesses that people are finding themselves in because of so much stress and fear that there has to be a shift. And you make a complete distinction that there are definitely two types of people. It's not that things are only happening to one segment of the population. It's really how we handle the issue, not so much what the issue is. That's right. You know, clearly, we, we all like to think we can control the outside world. But in fact, we can't. And, you know, bad things uh, will happen to good people, to bad people, to spiritual people, to people who aren't interested in spirituality. What happens externally is no respecter of, of people. And it's up to us to say, okay, this is the, ha- the hand that I've been dealt at this moment. And what's the most creative response to it? And what's important about that creative response is if you manage your fear well enough so that you can get a little bit quiet inside and listen to the guidance that's arising from within you, you really can be resilient. Uh, You can craft yourself a new life. And you can do that in a way that really, really moves with the evolution of you know, kind of the flow of what's right for you in your life and what's right for you in the world around you. Well, what I like so much about your book, It's Not the End of the World, is that it just is a very practical, methodical, and informative text on how we can move ourselves out of this place. And it really lets a person understand um, what it takes to help us be more resilient and help us move a little bit more into our creativity and into our power and leave behind perhaps some of those old habits or those old brain patterns. One of the statements that you write just in the very beginning was understanding that the future isn't something that happens to you, but something that you create is the key to surviving and thriving in changing times. And that's what this book is all about, isn't it? Well, it really is. And, you know, it's based, it's based on research. There's a tremendous amount of research on resilience. What makes a child resilient who grows up in a difficult circumstance or what makes a prisoner of war resilient or somebody, God forbid, in a Holocaust situation or someone who comes from an abusive background so, or a company for that matter. We have resilient companies and resilient nations as well as resilient individuals And, of course, it thrills me because I'm a medical scientist as well as a psychologist as well as a spiritual teacher to be able to draw on uh, research as well as experience in all of these areas. So in terms of the resilience research, one of the things that fascinates me about people who are able to create their best future, as you put it so well, Simran, to create lemons out of lemonade, is that those people are realists, and that's really important. I put a quote, and it's not the end of the world, from a man called William Arthur Ward, and he said this. uh, It's a sailing metaphor. He said, "The, um, the pessimist complains about the wind. The optimist expects it to change, and the realist adjusts the sails. And that's actually the first key to resilience, is that you're able to 
look at what's going on in your life, and you're able to admit it and to say, you know, for whatever reason, my life as it's going is not sustainable. And I need to do something. I need to take steps to see what I can do to create the future that I would really like to see. So, in other words, we're not, we're not waiting for a miracle here. We're actually taking action. And that's the first key to resilience. We have to accept what is, because if we are staying in a place where we're trying to ignore it or we are, are thinking something's going to occur that's not really even a possibility, we're really kind of escaping or running away from what is in that moment our current reality. Yes, that's exactly right. And a lot of people misuse uh, things like the secret as an escape, thinking I'm just going to, you know, affirm what I would like to see and it's going to miraculously happen. And I think the, the point of affirming the future is that it helps you find that place within yourself that can, you know, that really can have that, um, the get up and go, the creativity to take the next most elegant step towards something. So I got fascinated by just this question. Well, wait a minute, aren't optimists supposed to be the most resilient ones? And this I found a very fascinating thing. Uh, There was a book written by Jim Collins called From Good to Great. And he was convinced that optimistic people, uh, like the optim- that corporations, the most resilient corporations, would be made of optimistic people. So he began to interview people about this. One of the people he interviewed was a POW, and that was Admiral Jim Stockdale. And he asked Stockdale uh, who it was who lived and died in the POW camps. And he said, who died first? And Stockdale said, oh, that's easy. The optimists died first. And this was really surprising Hmm. to Collins. It would have been surprising to me, too, until Collins asked Stockdale why that was. And Stockdale said it was because of broken hearts. They kept thinking things like, okay, um, it will be Christmas and they'll get us out and Christmas would come and go. And then they'd say, well, by Easter, and they'd still be there. By Fourth of July, they would still be there. Well, by Thanksgiving, they'll get us out. And eventually, they succumbed to helplessness and depression. And one of the great books on resilience really talked about that, and that was Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he was in Auschwitz during the the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust. And he was, um, like Stockdale, very interested in who was resilient, who lived to see liberation, and who lived in a way that they would one day be whole and not um, totally crippled emotionally by what had happened to them. And he contrasted those with the people who gave up hope, became helpless, their immune systems would crash so that they'd maybe get typhoid in the next epidemic or whatever it was that was going through the camps, or they would die from stroke or heart attack, kind of an instant cardiac death. And this was exactly what Frankel had to say, that that people, if you gave up hope, that was the end of the game. And that's the problem with, I think, a lot of what Cornell West calls cheap optimism. And we have to be very careful 
when we think about what it is to think positively, not to become cheap optimists, but to remain realists with a passion for the possible so that we can say, yes, I'm going to make this plan, I'm going to make something happen, and it happens. And then we're empowered instead of feeling helpless. That's so extremely powerful because uh, when you talked about the secret, so many people have just dived right into doing the affirmations and they don't realize that we have these subconscious beliefs and feelings around things that will continue to create our lives or co-create our experience um, no matter how hard we're trying to affirm something else if we don't do that inner work. And, and that's kind of what that optimist does is they kind of glass over or cloud over what that reality is. And, and I understand now that heart, heartbroken syndrome that you're talking about about it it was it was an odd statement to look at in the book but but now that you you know talk about it and when you read about it it makes so much sense well it you know it really does um, <laughs> it it's a little bit like saying my god i found the truth and now i'm saved and then realizing but wait i'm not saved at all and that's one of the hardest things emotionally that can happen to somebody and you have to realize um, being saved from your circumstances means creating heaven on earth and <laughs> cooperating to create a life of meaning, to create a life where where you really say, what is my passion, what brings me fully alive, and be able to move in that direction. And that's a, that's a very different thing than just expecting it to come to you. Yes, it uh, is. Yes, great. it is. Great. The world is in crisis, but we don't have to be. We, we all know resilient people who bounce back from hardship and create their best lives. That's the promise of change. This is the focus of a new book by Dr. Joan Borsenko. It's not the end of the world, developing resilience in times of change. Dr. Joan Borsenko is a distinguished pioneer in integrative medicine, is a world-renowned expert in the mind-body connection. Her work has been foundational in international health care revolutions that have recognized the role and meaning and the spiritual dimensions of life as an integral part of health and healing. Her years of clinical experience and research culminated in the 1987 publication of the New York Times bestseller, Minding the Body, Mending the Mind, which sold over 400,000 copies. Now it is time to pick up her latest book, It's Not the End of the World. You can connect to her at her website, joanborisenko.com, and if you go to the 1111 Talk radio page under her bio, you can see that website link. And also connect to some of the different offerings that she has. She's got some programs coming up in October, Soul Care in Healthcare, a six-month certification for healthcare providers and administrators. And you can also participate in a wonderful women's retreat coming up in July with Karen Drucker and Dr. Joan Borisenko on Cortez Island in British Columbia. Check out all of these wonderful offerings and connect to her on Facebook through her website, joanborisenko.com. We'll be right back with more of this wonderful conversation. Your online community for positive change. Seventh Wave Network. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com 
1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Preparation 2012 and beyond. What does it mean? It means living your life from the authentic self. It means being who you were born to be. It means living a life of joy and self-confidence. Tune in to Elena Radford and Preparation 2012 and beyond every week. Elena will deliver the tools to personally transform your life to prepare for 2012 and beyond. Elena is the pioneer of a new dimension of healing, using her skills as a shaman to support the evolution of new men and women. Preparation 2012 and Beyond is broadcast live every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern on 7th Wave Network. Awakened media for a transforming world. 7th Wave Network. are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you'd like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to info at believesc.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simran Singh. Dr. Wayne Dyer will tell you that Joan Borisenko is the smartest woman he's ever known. After reading this book, you're going to want to connect more and more to her on her website, joanborisenko.com. Her latest, her latest publication is It's Not the End of the World, Developing Resilience in Times of Change. She wrote this book to teach us how to hold fear in the palm of our hands without being burned by its fire. It's something that we can all do no matter what we're going through. It's simply not the end of the world. It is a call for the genius that lies asleep within all of us, a genius that is ready and able to recreate the world. Uh, Joan, there was a specific statement that was said by a physicist, Ilya Prigogine. Ilya Prigogine, yeah. Prigogine, yes, and I found that very, very interesting. And it talked about what seems to be really happening, particularly in our own country, about systems crashing and, and how old systems have to crash because that allows us a reconfiguration and a better way to to move beyond what was going on in our past. It's almost an escape to a higher order. Is that some of what's going on in our world? And what's the payoff for us? If, if someone has to look at, let's say, uh, losing their house or losing their job, is there a good side to that? Well, there can be a very good side to it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's interesting, Simran. The book that I'm working on right now is called Fried, and the subtitle is Why We Burn Out and How to Revive. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a companion book to It's Not the End of the World because it's uh, it's about resilience, but it is about what fried is about is this. Um, you're fried when your life is no longer sustainable, when... The things that give you joy, there's no time for that anymore. There's no time for your inner life, and you're overwhelmed externally. I think our whole culture is in that, uh, is in that kind of, of fried framework. And I have a family member who is about to lose his home and is actually relieved because he had become, for example, 
so swept up in the consumerism and the greed that was happening um, in the 90s, you know, in the early part of this century for sure, people were overspending, we were wasting, we were despoiling the earth, we were looking at big is better. And as long as you can sustain that lifestyle, you stay stuck in it. Uh, you know, there's uh, years ago there was a book written by Dwayne Elgin called Voluntary Simplicity, and it was not about poverty. It was about reconfiguring your life to have your best life, a life that was elegant, a life where there was meaning, a life where there was no waste. And a lot of people facing foreclosure, facing job loss, seeing the whole superstructure of what they've created crashing are going to find that they have a much better life because now they're going to create it consciously from the questions of what's meaningful to me. Do I really want this job that's making me crazy? Or could I learn to shop in secondhand stores and grow a garden and actually find more creativity doing that? Or could I start my own business? What is it? So I think Ilya Prickogene was right. When a system crumbles, only then can it re- reconfigure and, in his words, jump to a higher level of organization. So that's what he calls the theory of dissipative structures. Uh, Prickogene actually won a Nobel Prize for that. And it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. I think the danger sometimes is when we try to shore up something that is crumbling. We don't want to see it crumble. Uh, and, you know, kind of enabling a bad thing to continue as long as it can, I think we've all done that, stuck with something for too long. And then when it finally crumbled, recognized there was actually some relief in it. Absolutely. I think so many times we cling to something so tightly, and the the stronger we want to let go, the stronger we want to hold on, is that much more reason we need to let go. What you just talked about, you illustrate in the book between two different uh, people and their scenarios. And I do find that, that our materialism and our quest for always having more sometimes is is perceived as freedom, but many times can turn into a small prison for us, um, and sometimes for some, a large prison, and that seemed to happen for a Wall Street analyst that had lost everything, and he jumped out of a window. That was his choice of how to handle that situation. And then there was another couple who had a mortgage brokering company, and they had lost everything, but they chose to downsize, to move to where they could with their kids, and start a new company for elderly care. So that's part of what you're illustrating through this book, is how when we can make the two different choices, but it's that resilience that helps the person make the choice to continue and really see those questions that you mentioned before of what's important to me, where do I want to spend my time. That's exactly right. And so what we're really talking about here is conscious evolution, making a conscious choice. And so there, there is, you know, it always sounds terrible to say there is a gift at the moment that your life falls apart. And the gift is there in a potential form. But it's up to each one of us to be able to say, okay, I'm going to look for this gift. I'm going to find it from this pinnacle of change where I am, instead of looking at the threat, the destruction, the difficulty, and yes, that's there, and of course it's scary, to be able to just turn your head 
in the other direction and say, but it's also a time of great possibility. What is it that I really want? What, you know, what is my mission? What is my purpose in life? And try to move toward that. You know, each one of us really has particular gifts. And, you know, in this time of change, I'm also doing that myself, Simran. And uh, I realize that my great calling, even though I'm a, I'm a medical scientist, I'm a psychologist, I have something called the Claritas Institute, which um, for several years trained spiritual mentors. And I loved doing that. And I realized essentially my own passion is soul craft. How does the soul grow? So I'm in the middle now of reconfiguring my own life. I'm taking the summer off. I'm taking my own advice here. And what I'm doing is looking to see how can I work with small groups of individuals, maybe 25 at a time, uh, really through a teleseminar system and one-on-one, uh, allowing them to, to learn the skills of soul craft, develop their own souls. And this is, of course, what really feeds me. I love to sit with people in that deep kind of way. And it's change that really asks that question of each one of us. What makes you feel mostly alive? What is the gift that you have to offer? And that aliveness is a spiritual discernment. If you're trying to say, okay, how am I going to cooperate with spirit? Where's the guidance for me here? What direction am I going to go in? You have to get, you have to get yourself quiet enough to sit and ask those questions and then really reflect on them until you feel, yes, this is what I'm called to. Well, and I think so often we forget and, and stay stuck in, in, in our physical experience, which is so human, that we forget that it really is a soul experience that's going on here to learn things, to discover, to be able to, to step into a place of connection with that inner spirituality and that greater intelligence, that greater source that we all connect to that the stress that we create in our lives is almost like a deterrent or it's, a, um, it's, it's almost like a, a product of us being disassociated with that inner spirit or that ability to truly step aside and say some of those questions that you've just, just asked. Well, it is. And I think fear, fear is like static on the line. You can't listen to the guidance. <laughs> it's obscured. Uh, I wrote a book with my husband a couple of years back called Your Soul's Compass, What is Spiritual Guidance? And we interviewed 27 luminaries, uh, spiritual teachers from different lineages, uh, Catholics, Jews, uh, Sufis, Hindus, shamans, uh, Buddhists. We had quite a remarkable time doing that. But one of the people we interviewed was an Episcopal priest and wisdom teacher, Cynthia Bourgeau. And she said, really, what we need to be doing is constantly taming and domesticating our fear. Mm -hmm. Because as long as the fear is in the way, it's not possible to be resilient. It's not possible to listen to that greater intelligence, to feel the kind of knowing that we feel when we connect up with what's right. And that's why, you know, my early background working uh, with Dr. Herbert Benson on the relaxation response, on meditation, on biofeedback, on imagination, 
is so very important because we have to understand and know physiologically how do we calm ourselves down. That's why things like exercise are important. Boy, that calms down the nervous system. Oh, definitely. Exercise, meditation, all of those things because without them, it's really not possible to be resilient. We have to calm down that static on the line, all right. I like how that was said, that we have to tame and domesticate our fear because so many times people think we have to get rid of it. And when you say tame and domesticate, what that really means is is be able to connect with it and help it to not be as strong as our in our lives. It doesn't mean that it completely disappears because I think fear also drives our passion to a certain extent or helps us with our creativity if it has not gotten out of control. Absolutely. Um, fear is the energy. And what it does, you know, when fear comes up, like, oh, my God, am I going to have a job? Am I next to be laid off? Or I've been laid off, and how am I going to feed my family? It drives us to say, I have to reinvent my life. You no longer have any choice. And so, in a way, you don't want to get rid of your fear, or we would stay static. But you can't let it overwhelm you. So that's, that's the key. And that's why I like the words tame and domesticate as well. Dr. Joan Borisenko has released a book entitled It's Not the End of the World, Developing Resilience in Times of Change. Resilient thinkers face difficult situations head-on. They do whatever it takes to survive. How about you? Do you accept your situation realistically, or are you more prone to denial, rationalization, or wishful thinking? Joan Borisenko is an internationally known speaker in spirituality, integrative medicine, and the mind-body connection, and has a doctorate in medical sciences from Harvard Medical School. She's a licensed clinical psychologist, the best-selling author of numerous books, and a journalist and radio personality. You can connect to her and many of her events at joanborisenko.com. We'll be right back with Dr. Joan Borisenko. Listening on a Higher Dimension, 7th Wave Network. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com. 1111 Magazine is a bi monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Be extraordinary. Seventh Wave Network. You are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you'd like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to info at believesc.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simran Singh. Resilient individuals face reality head-on. They take action, find deeper meaning in life, laugh often, and are masters of improvisation. 
A new kind of natural selection is already having its way with us. As change and uncertainty escalate, those who are prone to stress will be less able to compete, but hopeful, stress-hardy people will rule the world. This book, It's Not the End of the World, by Joan Borsenko, a world-renowned expert on stress, help, and human potential, is the tool chest needed to step into a bold new future that works for all of us. Joan, we were talking about how, um, and you call them secrets in the book, how we need to get into an acceptance of our reality, and that was secret number one. There were a couple of other secrets, and one of that was a deep belief that life is meaningful. You know, that that's something that a lot of people would naturally say, I think life is meaningful, but sometimes at a subconscious level, there could be other thoughts or beliefs that would maybe allow us to feel that life is not so meaningful. So is it important for us to do the inner work to discover some of what those subconscious thoughts or um, actions might be in our life? Well, absolutely. You know, one of my, my first interests in resilience was that I was running a mind-body clinic at one of the Harvard Medical School teaching hospitals. And I was running a clinic for people with cancer. And then in the early 80s, the AIDS epidemic developed. And what I noticed then is there were some people who approached being ill in a resilient way. Um, they realized, okay, I hope that my physical body can heal, but it may, it may not. But those are the people who said healing is something larger. Healing is about healing my relationships, becoming more loving, um, finishing my life in a way that um, has no aftertaste, that it's all, you know, it, it all feels like it's been metabolized and it's right. And I became very interested then in what was the difference between these two people, these two kinds of people. And it all had to do with this issue of trust, faith, and meaning in life. And, you know, that comes up at moments when your life comes crashing down. Mm. That's when people do things, like they yell at God and they say, well, you know, I've been a good person, why is this bad thing happening? You know, how come I'm losing my job and this nasty person over here um, gets to keep theirs? Or with your health people say to themselves, but wait a minute, you know, I ate well, I exercised, I did everything right, why am I ill? And these are questions that if you sit with them, really can, can help you see what is, your, what is your underlying belief system. Why, what is the meaning of success in this lifetime? What do you think you're doing on planet Earth? Um, does life end with the body? Is there something that survives? If so, what are you doing here in the first place? What is, what is it to mature as a human being? When you look back at your life, what is it going to feel like? Will it feel clean uh, or will there be that aftertaste? And these are the big questions. And I think one of the, one of the, the, the things that happens in times of crisis is it's kind of like a purgatory experience. Um, you go through a purgatory. To purge means to clean. And your patterns of living come up for you, and you have a chance to say, did that pattern of greed in the end serve me or not? It's not that it's sinful that somebody's going to smite you. It's that you say, wait a minute, did I just waste so much of my energy when I could have been with my family or out in nature? 
um, trying to accumulate stuff. Or, you know, you look at these various things, and as you look through your beliefs, you suddenly begin to think what really is meaningful. If these are the things that are not so meaningful, what do I place my trust in? What is, you know, what am I really serving? And these are the people who really are most resilient, who are able to, to, you know, answering these questions is not really the thing. It's kind of living into the questions, Simran, because, sure. for example, someone asked Albert Einstein what the most important question was we could ask. And his response was, is the universe friendly? And that, that's a big question because bad things routinely happen to good people. And yet, at some level, at least for me, I feel like the universe is actually very friendly. And that may be because I've had a near-death experience and I have a larger context for the difficulties of life. But to find some meaning, that was Viktor Frankl's whole thing. Without meaning, there can be no resilience. Well, and that's a, a good point to contemplate because so often I think a lot of us will, will decide that we, we feel like the world is, is supposed to be friendly. We feel like the universe is friendly. But we've all had experiences in our lives where maybe it didn't actually feel that way in the minute. And those particular experiences will create those underlying insecurities that keep telling us in the back of our mind that I'm not safe or it can't be um, safe to be around other people or life is not good or it's hard to make money, all of these different things that come up for us. And that belief that life is meaningful is so wonderfully um, put together just by Frederick Nietzsche's quote of those who have a why to live for can bear almost any how. And, And that's the truth. We have to have our why. And we have to do the digging before that to understand what got us there. That's exactly right. And so that's what I mean. The, the inner life is very, very important. And in a culture where we're running as fast as we are, very frequently these big questions that really the inner life can only can answer. You can't answer it in an external way. These things are internal. We don't get a chance to look at these things. And sometimes when the world crashes around us and we find ourselves suddenly sitting in the ashes of what was, that's when we have time to contemplate, not only time but willingness and motivation to contemplate and to develop this kind of um, of meaning, to excavate this kind of meaning and trust in something larger. Well, you are such an expert on stress and health, and I wanted to bring up this one particular point. It was many years ago I was at a health fair, and I happened to stop by a booth, and there was this new drink, that uh, a health drink that they were advertising, and supposedly if you drank a little bit of this drink and then you put your fingers on a card, it would measure your stress level. And I've always been a very even-keel person. I have never really gotten upset at very much. I try to do all the things that we're supposed to do. And so when I got my card back, it showed that I was in an incredibly high degree of stress in my body. And I went away from that thinking, gosh, I wonder how many of us walk around so stressed and we don't even realize it. And I think that's probably true for many people. I think we get so so comfortable being uncomfortable. We get so used to the body being in a certain angst that we don't realize that that's not the way we're supposed to be. (laughs) That's exactly right. 
You know, it's it's one of those things that you have no idea what um, what relaxation feels like. That's why I've been fascinated by the growth of interest in mindfulness over the years. Uh, I'm a I'm a great lover of the work of Thich Nhat Hanh. And then when I was um, starting a mind-body clinic in the 1980s back in the Boston area, one of my colleagues was Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, mm-hmm. who was very kind. He had started a mindfulness-based stress reduction program a year or two before Dr. Benson and I began our program, and he was very helpful in sharing his experience with us. And this idea of mindfulness, of you know, of being actually in deep relation with the moment so that, you know, you actually you actually see the person in front of you. You feel who that person is. You're open to them instead of, like, brushing them off and running to the next thing. Or when you're walking outdoors, you can smell the fragrances and see, you know, enjoy the rain or enjoy the clouds or enjoy the sun because you're in relationship to what's happening. That is a tremendous way to reduce stress and to become present. And I'm, I'm excited by the fact that this is now not such uh, like an esoteric thing, but something that people really understand and that's made its way into psychology and medicine. Well, it's so important because disease is on the uprise. The the health issues that people have, it's not just an age thing anymore. It can happen to, to whether we're in our 20s or whether we're in our 80s. There are different things that we're all fighting. And a lot of the cause is the degree of stress that we hold in our bodies. So it's time to have that conversation. And not only that, really participate in the activities or the beingness or the mindfulness that we need to participate in to help reduce that and relieve that. What were some of the other areas that you mentioned in the book besides mindfulness that can help us remove away from fear and stress? Well, you know, the greatest one seems to be exercise. Uh, And it's not like you have to go running marathons. Just taking a walk for a half an hour, three or four days a week, reduces stress levels tremendously. You know, in a, in a study, there were actually a whole spate of studies comparing exercise to antidepressants. And exercise, unless you're very severely depressed, actually um, statistically worked as well as antidepressants did. That's a pretty incredible thing because one of the, one of the things with resilience is this. Uh, we began by talking about the time between no longer and not yet the time between when your old life falls apart, whether you've gotten a diagnosis of illness or lost your job or been divorced or whatever it is, and the time before a new life emerges, that liminal time between no longer and not yet is a time where people frequently despair and become depressed. You can't transform when you're helpless. And if something so simple as exercising three or four times a week can change that, it's miraculous. So we know, for example, that people who walk their dogs, people who have dogs live eight or nine years longer than people who don't, and they have a much greater sense of well-being just because they're, they, they go outside. Outside is important. We need sunlight. We need earth. We're creatures of the earth. Um, living your life inside is not good for you. 
So nature, exercise, these are very, very important things. And then, of course, for many people, a yoga practice is a great form of meditation. You know, it's a great form of mindfulness because not everybody is going to be able to sit and close their eyes and meditate. In fact, a minority of people are interested in doing this. But many more are interested in practicing yoga or qigong, any of these things that bring you into the moment. And then kind of a shortcut to the practice of mindfulness is the practice of gratitude. Uh, I think in the book I mentioned the work of Brother David Steindelrast, who's a Cistercian monk. He wrote a book years ago called Gratefulness, the Heart of Prayer. And I adapted one of his suggestions from the book, and I'd also heard him speak. And he said, if you can think of one thing every day to be grateful for, something, you know, not by rote. It's not like, oh, gee, I'm happy that I have, you know, my husband or wife or children or food or, you know, all the things that, of course, we're grateful for, but something new and fresh, like maybe you got up in the morning and you went outside, it's a summer day, you had your coffee on the porch, and you felt this wonderful, fragrant breeze blow. And that night at bed, you would say, I was so grateful for that feeling, that incredibly refreshing, beautiful feeling of the grace of that breeze that blew. What happens is this. Since you know you've got to come up with something new to be grateful for every night, it makes you mindful. You develop new eyes. You begin to look for those things during the day. And that is how we start to get ourselves into a place where we relieve our stress. We become mindful. We allow ourselves to participate in exercise. We perhaps try new things like yoga, and we learn to develop a practice of gratitude. Without awareness of your thinking style, it's impossible to make better decisions. Awareness and choice are the building blocks of adapting creatively to change. How do you relate to change? Is it a threat to the status quo or a challenge to grow and develop? People who think of change as a challenge expand their horizons and mature as human beings. They're alive and juicy. Are you? Join me in just a few minutes and we'll continue this great great conversation with Dr. Joan Borisenko about her book, It's Not the End of the World. You can connect with her at joanborisenko.com. We'll be right back. The new home for visionary positive change. Seventh Wave Network. Have you seen 1111? Do you wonder why certain numbers keep showing up in your life? 11, 111, 22, 33, 444. People all over the world are seeing 1111 and learning the language of universal communication. Subscribe to 1111 Magazine today. www.1111mag.com 1111 Magazine is a bi-monthly print publication that offers a rich, multi-sensory experience. As you engage with experts and topics of consciousness, become enlightened, empowered, and energized so you live a passionate and authentic life of conscious choices. 1111 Magazine, a daily staple for lifting the mindset, discovering the heart, and stepping into conscious living. 1111 Magazine. Order now at www.1111mag.com. 1111mag.com. Taking you to the threshold of a dream and beyond. 7th Wave Network. 
are listening to 1111 Talk Radio. If you'd like to join today's discussion, please call in toll-free at 1-866-472-5795. Again, 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to info at believesc.com. Now back to 1111 Talk Radio with Simran Singh. We have been spending the last hour with Joan Borisenko and her latest book, which is entitled It's Not the End of the World. It's a wonderful book on helping you develop resilience in times of change. This is a book about how to hold fear in the palm of your hand without being burned by its fire. This is something that anyone can do, and it's not the end of the world. This is an opportunity to be called into our genius, the one that lies asleep within all of us, a genius that's ready and able to recreate in this world that allows us to step into our infinite possibility. You can connect with a lot of the workshops and other articles and newsletters at Joan's website, joanborisenko.com. She's also on Facebook, so definitely look her up there. And uh, she'll be coming out with another book called Fried that I'm anxiously awaiting <laughs> that we'll hear about. And if you haven't read her previous book, she has uh, one that has sold over 400,000 copies called Minding the Body, Mending the Mind. So you can go back and pick that up as well. Joan, we were talking a lot about how fear and stress impact our lives and how we can really move beyond that. How does the brain work with that, the left and right sides of the brain? Does it come you know, from one side or the other? Pretty pretty fascinating thing. One of, one of the stories I tell, and it's not the end of the world, is the story of a neuroanatomist at Harvard by the name of Jill Bolte-Taylor who had a stroke at 37 years old. Uh, she wrote a book about it called My Stroke of Insight. And your listeners could go to TED.com and simply enter stroke in the search bar, and you'll come up with an amazing 20-minute video that will, I guarantee, change your life. Because this was fascinating. We've got a brain scientist who watched herself have a stroke, a bleed in her left brain, that took the left brain offline. And what our, we need our left brains. That's what allows us to read. That's where language is. It allows us to speak. It, um, it allows us to have mathematical ability and logic. And these things are also important. But here's the thing. They're greatly important in the service of other things. And the right brain is what gives us some um, pattern recognition of those larger things. The right brain perceives energy. And if you listen to the Jill Bolte-Taylor video, it's quite amazing because her left brain function would go entirely and then she'd just be in this world of energy, of beauty, of a sense of great love and possibility and she would see things about herself and the universe and she called it nirvana. And she thought, oh my goodness, I've been to nirvana and I'm still alive. Anybody can access this state. And she realized that in order to access it, you have to be able to quiet the left brain, which is always chattering, always commenting, um, you know, always dragging you out of immediate experience into analysis of details and more details, as she says, about those details. And so, you know, we kind of live in our left brains in this culture. Unless you're an artist, artists live much more uh, in balance between their right and their left brain. 
And right when the Jill Bolte Taylor video had come out, I'd also read a fascinating book by the journalist Dan Pink called A Whole New Mind. And his premise was this, that um, the left brain is going to be less important as as time goes on because we can Google information. Information is cheap at this point. But what allows us to create a new life and what allows us to create a new world is the recognition of energy, of pattern, of greater patterns, to the recognition of synthesis, of how things interact. And out of those interactions, something entirely new um, is birthed. And he, you know, it's, it's his premise that it's right-brained people who are going to be in most demand. And, of course, it's the right brain that gives rise to what our spiritual teachers call an alternate way of knowing. And that is the knowing is not logical. It's intuitive. You simply know what you know. There's part of you that has perceived a pattern that is invisible to the left brain. And people will say, well, how do you know that? How did you arrive at that? And you'll say, I just know. (laughs) I agree, and and I think so much of what we are here to do as spiritual beings is really experience ourselves. And our left brain experience has been one where we discover and we learn and we become the computer and many of us become the machines and things like that. But that right brain really allows us to truly experience all of us, to step into that creativity, to be able to learn how to improvise and synthesize, to how to become intuitive, to how, how to tap into so much more of who we really are than what we perceive on the physical sense. Absolutely, because, you know, back to those three keys of resilience, what we've spoken about is looking your situation in the eye, being a realist. Then we've spoken about the importance of having a sense of trust and domesticating your fear. Another great key is developing these right brain skills, developing radical creativity. And mindfulness ties into that because... When we're mindful and simply present to, gee, that's the breeze blowing, and we're not trying to calculate, um, you know, the miles per hour that the breeze is blowing, but we're simply enjoying it, mindfulness develops those right brain skills. So does Tai Chi, so does yoga, when we become aware of the body. And, and all of these things are necessary to remake yourself. For example... I get many of my good ideas in meditation, not thinking about things, although the history of creativity usually talks about first you kind of think things through with your left brain, but the left brain can only get you so far. Einstein always said, you know, you can't solve a problem at the same level that it was created. Exactly. So it brings you only so far, and then you have to let go and let the other part of your brain, this inner knowing, uh, come about. So when I sit in meditation, for example, this morning I had been, for the last couple of days, I had been thinking about this new program that I'm going to develop where I'll take about 25 people and I will mentor each one of them individually once a month for a year. And then we'll have a teleseminar 
once a month where we work on something very specific and they've been given information about it and readings about it. And then a second teleseminar monthly where we'll have a luminary from a different spiritual tradition. And I, I, um, I sat to meditate this morning and I had barely sat down when the word soul craft popped to my mind. And I said, yes, that's what the program is. I'm going to call it soul craft. Now, I could not think of that with my left brain, but it's the, it's the letting go of the left brain. And the right brain just synthesizes everything that had been going on in there, and there it is. So that's what we need. Well, and when we do that, we actually tap into that greater mind and that greater feel, and we allow ourselves to live a little more in the flow of things, and life becomes easier. Well, so we move out of that... Um, that part of life that we think we create, that that we think we have our hands clutched around, and we let go enough to really allow it to be more of a collaborative effort. That's so well said. It's a co-creative effort. You know, when it's just your own ego who's in charge of things, you can manifest quite a lot. But what you manifest in the end may eat you up. And it's exhausting. Healthy. (laughs) (laughs) And so the thing about cooperating with that flow is it's always something that's going to be sustainable, that sustains your inner life, and that's good for others. So that's what we want to do is, you know, get the ego out of the catbird seat and use the skills of the ego in service of this co-creativity with a larger intelligence. Well, I want to thank uh, Dr. Joan Borsenko for being on 1111 Talk Radio. She is a distinguished pioneer in the integrative medicine field and a world-renowned expert in the mind-body connection. Her work has been foundational in international health care, and she recognizes the role of meaning and the spiritual dimensions of life, and she incorporates that into all of the teachings of health and healing that she allows herself to create on this planet. Her latest book, It's Not the End of the World, is a wonderful piece you need to go and get. And you can connect with her at joanborisenko.com and also discover some of the workshops she has coming up, including Soulcraft, uh, including um, the the six-month-long practitioner series that she's going to be doing for, for certification. And also, if you are a woman that just wants to go and be witty and have fun and find your empowerment, you can connect to her in July with Karen Drucker for that particular workshop and any others that are listed on her website. Are you ready to move on? It's time to accept your life and make peace with the past. Arguing with reality will only stress you out and wear you down. So pick yourself up, brush yourself off, and find positive meaning in your experience. Accepting what is and learning from it is the first step toward a better future. So acceptance isn't wimping out. Let go of your grudges and allow yourself to forgive what's going on in your experience because it's all for you. Step out and purchase your own copy of It's Not the End of the World and start to truly create in a beautiful way your experience. Make lemonade out of your lemons. I'm Simran Singh and until next week, be well. Thank you for stepping into the doorway of conscious choice with 1111 Talk Radio. Please join host Simran Singh again next Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time for another enlightening edition here on the 7th Wave Network. Remember, shift happens.